there are some people who are truly very sick here. And when people are busy disagreeing about things and pushing papers, I think they would all do well to go out and see some of these sick people, see what's happening to them, and then try and sit down and work together to see if we can't do things better, because there certainly is room for improvement in the system. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could join us today. This is Bob Ambrogi coming from Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Today's show, Bob, is sponsored by Clio and Landy Insurance. And I know you write some blogs. I do write several blogs. I, I write my own blog called Law Sites. I write uh, Legal Blog Watch for Law.com and also a blog called Media Law. Craig, uh, there's been a lot of talk in the mainstream media lately about uh, asbestos litigation. For one, a chemical company, W.R. Grace, and three former executives were acquitted last week on all criminal charges uh, in uh, in uh, Montana mining town after uh, uh, it was contaminated by asbestos. Well, Bob, asbestos litigation has also gone global, while the production of asbestos in the United States has been curbed since 1970s. Countries like Russia and China and India are presently leading producers and consumers of the substance. In California, a judge called out plaintiff attorneys dealing in asbestos litigation for playing grisly games. There have been cases where plaintiff attorneys in states such as Texas have set up shop in California, uh, supposedly to file claims in friendlier courts regarding asbestos cases. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at what's new in asbestos litigation. We'll also explore asbestos litigation going global, how attorneys have been filing claims in other states with friendlier state courts, potentially like California, and what is being done to put asbestos litigation and its system on the right path. And to do all that, we have two experts joining us today. First of all is Kirk Hartley, partner in and one of the two leaders of Butler, Rubin, Saltarelli, and Boyd's litigation group, where he's focused on asbestos and other legacy liability issues. Uh, Kirk Hartley has litigated a wide range of asbestos uh, products. Kirk has been heavily involved in representing a corporate objector to the federal mogul asbestos bankruptcy due to shared insurance issues. Kirk has assisted companies and other law firms with lobbying on asbestos legislation, with decisions on whether to accept offers from solvent and insolvent insurance schemes, and on product liability issues related to Sarbanes-Oxley, due diligence and contract issues and merger and acquisition transactions. He also uh, co-writes the blog Global, GlobalTort.com. Uh, welcome to the show, Kirk Hartley. Thanks very much. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I'm Bob, our next guest is attorney Stephen Kazin. He's founding senior managing principal of Kazin, McLean, Abrams, Lyons, Greenwood, and Harley. He filed his first case on behalf of an asbestos victim in 1974 and since then has represented thousands of injured workers and their family members in court cases. Attorney Kazin also represented their interests through his service on creditors' committees 
for asbestos disease victims in the reorganizations of asbestos companies that sought to avoid their responsibility under the bankruptcy laws. He also serves on the Asbestos Victims Creditors Committee in the Chapter 11 Bankruptcy Reorganization of Babcock and Wilcox. And in 2008, Attorney Kazin became member of the ALI-ABA's Litigation Advisory Panel and has testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee on asbestos litigation. He also writes a blog found at KazinLawBlog.com. Welcome to the show, Attorney Stephen Kazin. Uh, Thank you. Nice to be here. Well, let's just toss out this first question and see what it is that's new in asbestos litigation. From my perspective, uh, there's a couple things that are new. One is you're seeing more and more jockeying between the plaintiff's interests and the insurer's and defendant company's interests in setting the rules for asbestos litigation through either state legislatures or through approaches to courts as to how they're going to deal with the litigation. You're also seeing some more dialogue between federal and state court judges, uh, and you're seeing uh, a more active approach to dismissing the claims of the so-called non-malignant plaintiffs who are, in general, claimants that have been clogging up the court system and making it harder for people with cancer claims to obtain recoveries. There's also a lot more international claims starting to occur. Stephen, you want to follow up? Uh, Sure. Uh, On a day-to-day basis, uh, there's not a whole lot that has changed uh, over the last uh, five or six years. The complexion of the litigation has shifted a little bit. Um, It's moved... uh, almost exclusively uh, to litigating over uh, people dying of asbestos-related cancers, uh, the large numbers of uh, non-malignant cases and people without significant uh, lung function abnormality or impairment uh, has, has pretty much dried up in the last few years. Um, there, there's a, a process by which a lot of these companies have reorganized in bankruptcy and trust funds have been established uh, to pay their liabilities uh, those claims are continuing. Uh, there's been some other evolution of the litigation uh, into uh, so some different areas of corporate responsibility, uh, largely a function of uh, the change in, in demographics of, of where the cases come from. Uh, we started out doing mostly uh, shipyard uh, and military Navy cases uh, because of the long lag time or incubation period for asbestos disease, usually uh, cases don't turn up for 20, 30, or 50 years from the start of asbestos exposure. And we're now pretty well past uh, the cases that arose out of World War II. Um, we're well into uh, and maybe close to the tail end of cases that came out of the post-war construction boom you know, through the late 40s and into the middle and late 50s, Um, and as a result, we're seeing cases that come from a much more varied uh, source uh, of exposures. Um, You know, there are only a handful of shipyards, but there are thousands and thousands of construction sites, and and so there's a a wider variety of companies that are getting sued uh, for asbestos-containing products Um, as time goes on. And the major initial companies have disappeared from the litigation because of bankruptcy. More attention is being focused on the companies that that were kind of given a pass for the first 10 or 20 years of the litigation. And so we're seeing that on a day-to-day basis uh, in courts all over the country. 
the legislative efforts to eliminate victims' rights have pretty well died out at the federal level. Um, they continue to occur at, at the state level in certain jurisdictions um, with mixed success on the part of those seeking to end the litigation. Uh, but, but uh, you know, Kirk and I and our colleagues, uh, you know, are in court every day litigating individual cases uh, for individual victims uh, against a variety of companies, and, and that continues and in the United States um, shows no sign of disappearing anytime soon, although within the next five or so years, it may begin to taper off just a little bit. Let me just ask, I'm curious, uh, I, I know that neither of you are criminal lawyers, but I, I wonder what your take is on, on uh, this this uh, acquittal in Libby, Montana last week, uh, and whether this prosecution represents a, a new uh, approach to uh, asbestos contamination and, and how the government, at least, will, will deal with it. And uh, throw that out to either of you. Kirk, start with you. Well, let me start by saying that I'm a bit biased on the topic because between <laughs> about 1995 and 2000, I represented Grace in asbestos litigation, nothing uh, directly involving uh, the charges brought in Libby. In my view, the Libby prosecution was misguided from the start. They essentially said that the company covered up facts about Libby. I think that's malarkey if anybody looks in the below the surface. As a matter of fact, I went back and dug out an old book by a plaintiff's expert, a fellow by the name of Barry Castleman, who testifies a lot. And he wrote a book back in 1986 that has several pages devoted to W.R. Grace and Libby and the whole mine situation and the tremolite contamination of the vermiculite that was being mined there. So for the government to claim that there was an ongoing conspiracy when Barry Castleman was writing about it in some detail in 1986 is, to me, pretty incredible. And um, I just think the whole thing was misguided, and I, I'll leave it at that. Stephen, give our audience, please, a little background on the case and perhaps why you think the executives were acquitted. Well, I, you know, again, I haven't followed it all that closely. My understanding is that because of legal constraints, the theories uh, the government could pursue were, were kind of limited uh, based on the statutes that the allegedly were violated and the time periods involved. Um, I have to say, although it pains me to do so, uh, that I think Kirk is pretty much correct uh, about this case. The, um, you know, the, I, I have no particular love for uh, the corporate executives at Grace. Uh, I think uh, the company has, in the old days, was absolutely despicable, going back to uh, Peter Grace's conduct during World War II, uh, you know, across a whole range of issues. Um, and nonetheless, the fact of the matter is that by the late 70s, when the government started looking into what was going on at, uh, at Libby uh, and studying it, uh, Grace, as I understand it, uh, commissioned some uh, medical studies. There was a major research effort undertaken by Corbett and Allison McDonald of McGill Medical School, uh, to study the Libby workers uh, in the mid-'80s. They, in fact, published a paper uh, analyzing the health experience of those workers, and they reported on 
four cases of mesothelioma, which is the signal asbestos cancer and the major focus of all the litigation that goes on. Uh, they published these four cases, attributed them to the tremolite asbestos contamination of the vermiculite, and this was out there for everybody to see. And in fact, I've seen uh, references to that paper uh, that were published in community newspapers uh, in uh, Montana, you know, uh, short articles uh, talking about how this had been published. Um, the only thing that would lead me to believe that, that Grace, in fact, might have conspired to conceal this was that the abject failure of, uh, of any effort at concealment, you know, is, is testament to the, the general uh, corporate incompetence that I think was involved in running that company. But I certainly uh, am not surprised that the acquittal, um, you know, I think that Grace's lawyers did a very good job uh, on the case. And uh, I think this whole thing really is, was kind of a sideshow um, to, the, to the more critical issues of uh, making sure that Grace's victims and the victims of other American companies continue to get reasonable compensation for what's been done to them. In the beginning of the show, we talked about uh, asbestos litigation going global. Are you seeing the same types of problems in other countries? And I understand that there have been some dramatic changes in the litigation in the United Kingdom. What can the lawyers and uh, the court systems in the UK expect? Well, in the United Kingdom, there have been some legal changes uh, in terms of what kinds of cases are uh, compensable dealing with what, what's called plural plaques, which are basically scars on the lining around the lung. Uh, the courts said that those were no longer compensable. The legislative bodies in Scotland, and I think now in England, uh, have overturned those rules, and those cases are coming back. Um, there's There's been a fair amount of litigation over the years in England. It has generally been not in the workers' compensation area, but at least in claims against employers on behalf of their own workers. Uh, I think England is beginning to uh, discover the concept of uh, broader uh, products liability law. The, uh, the fact is that um, England uh, is uh, lagging behind us a little bit in, in terms of the, um, the development of, of increasing numbers of mesothelioma cases. Um, they are now uh, getting uh, many, many more of them than they ever expected. That's going to continue to increase over the next couple of decades, and it's becoming a much more pervasive problem uh, throughout uh, Europe as well, uh, to say nothing of other parts of the world. Uh, I think that the English legal system does a, a pretty good job of dealing with these cases, uh, and of course, uh, in some respects, the uh, English workers will have claims against American bankruptcy trusts as well for those companies who did work in England and, and sent products over there. And those cases are beginning to come in um, in small but significant numbers. And Steve, I, I saw it from reading your blog that you had recently participated in a conference in Hong Kong, I believe it was, uh, talking about this very issue of, of foreign claims being brought in U.S. bankruptcy trusts. Can you Talk a little bit more about that, and then, and then maybe we can ask Kirk to, to add, add his thoughts on that as well. Um, sure. There, there, at the end of April, there was a, um, a conference called the Asian Asbestos Conference, which brought together several hundred 
uh, people, mostly um, uh, labor union, uh, grassroots activists, um, uh, community groups, non-governmental organizations, um, some doctors, some attorneys, um, but uh, really uh, the sort of the public interest community uh, working towards uh, banning the use of asbestos throughout Asia um, and trying to improve working conditions and protection of workers uh, and also uh, to help develop legal remedies. Um, I was... Uh, lucky enough to be invited to, to speak, and I gave a brief presentation on sort of the legal options that Asian asbestos victims would have with respect to American companies, and, and then I uh, taught a two-hour workshop on uh, how to use the USS bankruptcy claim process uh, to submit claims for Asian victims, um, and uh, uh, try to teach people, you know, how to how to undertake the process, how to do the research necessary, um, and convince them that they could do this themselves, and that they um, did not need to hire American lawyers and would be, would be better off if they didn't. Um, and it was a very interesting process. I learned a lot from uh, interacting with uh, those folks, and uh, I hope they learned something from me. Kirk, your thoughts on? I mean, I, I know that you're you've also written a lot about uh, bankruptcy. I mean, it, it seems like the the bankruptcy court has become uh, one of the primary forums for a lot of the issues related to asbestos claims. Uh, can you uh, talk about your perspective and your involvement in that? Sure. Uh, let me go back and just make one comment on what Steve said. I think a small error crept in there in London. They haven't yet decided what they're going to do about plural plaque claims. They have made some decisions in Scotland, as he said. Um, I think it will be a grave mistake if they start allowing or reallowing compensation for plural plaques, which is a classic example of non-impaired claimants, and I think it's focusing on the wrong thing. Um, in terms of asbestos bankruptcy trusts, it's it's a very active area today. There's $30 billion or more sitting in the existing trusts. There are more trusts in formation that will have some number of additional billions of dollars to disperse, and it's driving claiming in the sense of, uh, at least for many of the trusts, the non-malignant claimants are still able to collect in the aggregate many hundreds of millions of dollars from the trusts. I think that's a mistake from a policy perspective, but many of them are already in place. And with that much money out there, it's certainly going to have a growing influence on strategies and tactics that are employed in the underlying litigation. Well, um, you know, I, I have to say that I, I think Kirk is a little bit inaccurate about that. Um, certainly, all of these trusts, uh, which are designed to, in effect, replicate uh, the tort system in that people who have tort claims are channeled to the trusts and get to bring them for liquidation and payment there. Um, and, and as a result, uh, these unimpaired claims, which are generally cognizable in the courts of, of virtually every state, with a couple of exceptions, you know, are legitimate claims. Uh, the trusts value them uh, quite modestly. Um, and impose uh, pretty strict requirements on proof of exposure to the products involved, uh, require uh, generally at least six months of exposure to the product of, of the company for whom the trust is responsible, uh, 
and generally five years of overall asbestos exposure, which rules out a lot of cases that otherwise would be in court uh, and pays them relatively little. Um, the, the reality is that the trusts that are paying claims are, are generally paying, uh, you know, well over 70 or 80 percent of the money, and in some cases almost 100 percent of the money, uh, to people with cancer and, and crippling asbestosis. Most of the rest of that money goes to people with demonstrated lung function abnormalities and relatively little, uh, I would say probably on the order of 5 percent or less, you know, overall goes to the, the large number of old uh, claims uh, brought by those with no uh, lung function impairment. That doesn't mean that they don't have claims or uh, legal injury. It's just that it hasn't changed their daily lives, uh, particularly other than possibly anxiety and fear and so on. Uh, but uh, that's generating relatively little money. And unlike in, in the early years of... Uh, this decade, when we were seeing 50 or 60 or 80,000 of those cases a year in the country, I mean, now there may be four or 5,000 a year. Uh, that's the latest data I saw was from last year. So uh, it, they still exist, but they are dwarfed in number uh, by the, uh, the cancer cases uh, and the serious impaired cases, and certainly in terms of the dollars that are uh, paid, uh, the overwhelming bulk of the money goes to to those with the cancers, and the vast majority of that goes to people with mesothelioma, which, as I said, is a signal tumor of asbestos caused in this country by nothing else. And everybody, uh, even on the defense side, agrees um, that those people have uh, very legitimate injuries. So I, I think the bankruptcy process uh, is working quite well. Um, it takes these trusts a while to get up to speed. Uh, I'm here in Washington now for a week of meetings. I act as an advisor to most of these trusts, and we've had, I don't know, a dozen different trust meetings uh, in the last couple of days. So uh, I think that process is, is developing uh, and continuing, and uh, we'll be providing some compensation to people here and as well uh, around the world who've been injured by American companies. Let me just follow up in one way. I agree with Steve that today the compensation to the non-malignants from the trust is very reduced from what it was. But if you go back and look at all the money that was drained out of the Manville trusts and others by the non-malignant claimants, it's really a travesty to look back and see what happened. And to Steve's credit, I will note that back in the Manville days, he was one of the few people standing up and saying, you really don't want to be paying all that money to the people who are less or are the least sick, but uh, Steve's view did not carry the day. Certainly things are improving these days. I think there's more room for improvement yet to be uh, accomplished. Well, I, I certainly agree with Kirk that if people would listen to me more, the world would be a better place. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and we would like to listen to you more, but first we have to take a break, and we will be back uh, after these words from our sponsors. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. 
Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Right from the beginning, you know, I knew I was important. Can you say that about the insurance agency helping to protect your legal practice? Lawyers like Rebecca Brody are confident working with the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, knowing they have the best professional liability insurance coverage for the best possible price. It is about customer service. I think that's what we like to promote in our business. You know, we did have some kind of specialty questions. We did have some concerns. It was really great, and I really felt like if I'm that well taken care of it, it made it possible for me to go and take care of, you know, take care of my business and take care of my clients. Give us a call at 800-336-5422 or visit our website at landy.com. That's L-A-N-D-Y dot com. 60 years of experience. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome back attorney Kirk Hartley from the firm of Butler, Rubin, Saltarelli, and Boyd, and attorney Stephen Kazin from the firm of Kazin, McLean, Abrams, Lyons, Greenwood, and Harley. Well, before the break, we were talking about bankruptcy trusts. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you guys see as the next step in the judicial system in terms of uh, asbestos litigation. We've seen some criticisms, I think, of some actions in trying to move to different states. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that? Kirk, let's start with you. I think you're going to continue to see cases filed in whatever forum uh, people view as the most favorable, and I think in general they should be doing that. Uh, there is, however, uh, a situation that's developing where um, defendants are being denied the opportunity to meaningfully question claimants. As Steve alluded to earlier, many of the claimants today did not just work at one shipyard for their entire life, but instead worked at a variety of job sites. And so what happens is to elicit their facts can take literally 24, 30 hours of questioning by defense lawyers if they're going to get meaningful information. Well, in some states, uh, there have been rules put in place to reduce fees that limit depositions to six hours. And so when you have 25, 50, 100 defendants in the case, six hours isn't nearly enough time. And the Judge Mignot's came out and criticized a firm that has been involved in some cases where they filed a case in Texas. The plaintiff is deposed under the six-hour limit, and then the case is refiled in California. I think that's a problem. I think judges will look for ways to rectify that situation, uh, and I think they should. Uh, That said, I think everybody uh, on all sides of the issues takes advantage of the procedural ploys when they can, and it's a part of litigation, and the courts can never quite keep up with the lawyers. Stephen, the Supreme Court once wrote about asbestos litigation and called it an elephantine mass that defies customary judicial administration. It seems like it's somewhat out of control. Well, no, that that's an old ruling from 15 years ago, uh, an old comment. Um, it, it may have had some merit then. Uh, following that, you know, there were efforts to, to change things uh, legislatively that didn't work. Uh, and the litigation is very different today than it was at that time. I mean, there was a time when we were getting 75 to 100,000 new cases a year. Uh, now there, it's, it's a, a small fraction of that. 
you have to remember that that 10,000 Americans die every year of asbestos-related disease, to say nothing of of those who who are living with chronic disabling disease. So there there are going to be a lot of cases. Um, uh, The courts tend to to handle them reasonably well. Um, They tend to be concentrated in a variety of states, uh, typically the major industrial manufacturing areas, the areas where there were shipyards, where ships were built and repaired over the years, uh, back in the days when the United States still had a merchant marine. Um, you know, Navy ships are still being worked on uh, in shipyards, and at least they were uh, with asbestos, you know, going back uh, 20 years or, or so ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, so states where, where people retire, where people have big industrial jobs, tends to be a major focus of the litigation. And the courts in those states tend to develop ways to deal with them. Uh, Kirk was talking about the deposition question, uh, and and that's a major issue. We have clients who regularly have to sit for depositions that last 100 or 200 hours spread over weeks, if not months. Um, you know, no one wants to deprive defendants of legitimate uh, inquiry, but a lot of this is repetitious and painful. Um, a lot of it, in my view, is funded uh, for profit by uh, defense firms uh, who bill for every hour they work, um, and you have 20 or 30 defense lawyers sitting in a room, each of them with the meter running, um, half of them reading newspapers, the other half online, um, reading anything from uh, blogs uh, to news clips to watching ESPN and the occasional porno movie as well. Um, while one guy is asking questions. Um, Most of the clients with mesothelioma uh, are not feeling well. They are all terminally ill. uh, And to subject dying people to scores, if not hundreds of hours of repetitive questioning, um, it really borders on torture, uh, particularly in in states like California, where pain and suffering as a form of damages does not survive the death of the claimant, um, one can, uh, without being entirely cynical, often wonder whether a defense counsel or, uh, would not be upset if the guy died before he got to trial uh, and uh, aren't uh, displeased at imposing additional stress on, on these folks. Uh, the federal rule on depositions generally is absent the showing of good cause. You get seven hours. And what I would suggest is that when the U.S. government sued Microsoft for antitrust, David Bowie's was able to ask anything he needed of Bill Gates in seven hours, and that was a billion-dollar case. You know, if seven hours was enough in that case, it probably ought to be close to enough in almost every case, you know, of a guy who just went to work to make a living and was exposed to asbestos that he didn't know about. So, uh, you know, fair is fair, and, and letting the defendants get the information they need is fine, uh, but uh, it has it really turned into a very abusive situation uh, in most of our cases, and I hear this from lawyers all over the country all the time, uh, that unless the, their court has limits, uh, it's abused in their cases as well. And I can agree with Steve that there are some ill-prepared and 
lazy lawyers who are not doing a good job. And I certainly agree the process can and should be streamlined sometimes. I think the answer there is for the judge presiding over things to get involved and keep the feet to the fire of both the plaintiff's lawyer to disclose meaningful information prior to the deposition so that they can be streamlined, and then for the lawyers to stay focused. In some cases, six or seven hours is enough. In others, it's not nearly enough, and people need to spend the time to do it right and get out the meaningful information. Kirk and Stephen, we've reached the end of our program where it's time to uh, wrap it up and get your uh, contact information so that our listeners can reach you and uh, give us a very brief final thought. So, Stephen, let's start with you, and uh, if you would, please. Well, uh, the easiest way to get to me is uh, on our website. It's... uh Surprisingly, uh, kazanlaw.com, K-A-Z-A-N-L-A-W. Uh, you can reach me by email there. I, that's where my blog is on those occasions when I get around to writing something. Uh, and I, I welcome questions or inquiries from people and promise to respond. Great. And Kirk? Uh, easiest way to reach me is probably through my blog, which is globaltort.com, as you mentioned. And that includes addresses and stuff for the office. People are welcome to contact me. I would just close by noting my agreement with Steve that there are some people who are truly very sick here. And when people are busy disagreeing about things and pushing papers, I think they would all do well to go out and see some of these sick people, see what's happening to them, and then try and sit down and work together to see if we can't do things better because there certainly is room for improvement in the system. Wonderful. Thank you, gentlemen, very much for your participation in our show today. Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. And to our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And let me add my thanks to Kirk and Stephen. It's, it's nice to have two very civil uh, lawyers from, from opposite sides of the aisle uh, on the show. We appreciate uh, your time. And, uh, Craig, look forward to talking to you next week. We'll be back then, Bob, to discuss another great legal topic. And when you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.